So as many of you know, I taught for the month of March at Spirit Rock and we worked during that time with one of the teachings of the Buddha which is called the cycle of transcendental dependent origination. Please don't get scared. It's kind of a big title. And um, I was so taken with the different talks that we all gave and um, and interested in the cycle. It's continued to come up in some of my conversations. So I thought that in the next several times that I'm teaching here, I would basically work our way through that cycle. Because it seems a really useful teaching to have because it's really the teaching about how you go from the place where you're suffering to the place where you're liberated. So this is good news, right? And, uh, and it's actually not such a common teaching. It's only in one sutta in all of the Buddhist suttas. <coughs> so it's not one of those lists that you come across all over the place. So I want to start with a poem. It's a poem from William Stafford. It's called The Way It Is. And he says, There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. But it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So in a way, this teaching is about the thread. You know, where, what thread can you follow through all of the vicissitudes of life? And what's interesting is you know, so much of the Buddha's teaching actually begins with suffering. And sometimes it's even said, a little bit mistakenly, that what Buddhism is about is suffering. Um, That is not true. It's really about the ending of suffering. But the Buddha teaches us that in order to come to that ending of suffering, we really have to understand the nature of our own pain and difficulty. And so, you know, it's a pretty common question. What is going on here? You know, what is going on here in this human experience, which for many of us, over and over again, doesn't feel so very comfortable. You know, there's a lot of difficulties, and there's this even agonizing, and we often don't understand what's going on with the other person or the other persons or with ourselves, (laughs) with our bodies, with our world, whatever it is that is causing the suffering. So in the story of the Buddha, the sort of the mythic story, if you will, of of his life, no one really knows, you know, exactly what happened. It was twenty five hundred years ago and there isn't really a written record. But in the in the mythic story, he grew up in a very protected environment, and his parents 
saw to it that he didn't have very much exposure to anything that was difficult, not to illness, not to old age, not to death, none of the real difficulties of life. He, he was supported in a way that was very luxurious for his time and um, <coughs> very carefully kind of training him to be the ruler of his kingdom, which was what his father was. Um, but, you know, how it is with young people, that wasn't enough, and they get itchy, right, and want to get out. All of us that either are young or have been young, so we remember that place where somehow the container that's been intended for us or created for us by our parents or our teachers just doesn't seem like it's right anymore. And so we go out searching for more, which is exactly what the Buddha did. He got out, he went into town, the story goes, with his charioteer where he encountered someone who was sick and someone who was old and someone who was dead. And then he saw a monk who seemed to be walking through all of this suffering with great peace. And and the Buddha, you know, as a young man who had never, had been so protected, was completely blown away by this stuff. Like, what is happening here? Never seen sickness. He hadn't seen old age. Was this going to happen to him? And the charioteer said, well, yeah, you know, it happens to everybody. So this is what set him on his path, was this first place where he encountered these difficulties. And then later, in, in the process of his awakening experience, he saw very clearly the, what is sometimes called the chain of dependent origination. So this is the chain that's about the cyclic nature of suffering. And, um, and he really began to understand how we get so caught how we go around and around and around, endlessly caught in the same mistakes and the same suffering over and over and over again. And, you know, we're all familiar with that because we've done, you know, the same bad relationship more than once or the same awful job or we've opened our mouth and the same difficult, not very skillful words have come out. And, and sometimes... You know, as you start being alert to this, sometimes there's even that place in the mind that says, oh my God, I'm doing it again. You know, I'm doing it again. How can this be? How can I have gotten caught and be doing it, you know, being in this cycle? Um, all the forms of addictive behaviors are, are like that. And it's a place where there isn't any freedom or we're just going around in the wheel. So in the description of it, just so you'll know, we're not going to spend much time on on this. Um, Really, what he's saying is um, that when we come to a particular moment in time, we don't perceive clearly. So in the first part of that chain, it starts with ignorance. And you can think of ignorance, often I think of it as a kind of unconsciousness. It's something that we don't see clearly, we don't know, we don't remember So it's really buried in our mind and heart. And that ignorance, sometimes if you think of (coughs) maybe, you know, something that happened in your childhood, but you don't remember it. But there's a certain way of thinking that grows out of those events. And um, 
and there are certain kind of consciousness, maybe liking certain things or disliking certain things, that are all conditioned by this ignorance. And this is all a, a teaching about how one step conditions the next, conditions the next. And so, um, when we come to that particular moment in time, we're not seeing clearly. Our mind is colored, if you will, by our past experiences and we have created that certain kind of consciousness or that's what sort of automatically comes up in the mind. And um, and so we're perceiving our experience. It's like having a lens over your perception. You're perceiving through the lens of that old story and um, we're conditioned about it. And then, you know, there's a moment of experience. You know, there's if we stay with the list, you know, something arises, some being, some event, name and form, and, and it encounters the sixfold sense base, so all of the senses, and, and there's a moment of contact. And so, the, so that's all describing how different pieces of the perceptual experience happen, each condi- conditioning another. And there you are, you're perceiving, let's just say, this person. Ta-da! The moment of perception. And because of the filter, there's often some level of reactivity. There's a feeling. It's pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or it's neutral. It's a very important place in practice. It seems so simple. It's an entire foundation of mindfulness, actually, where you're invited to notice, as you have your experiences, what your reaction is in the moment. Is this pleasant? Is this unpleasant? Is it neutral? So let's just say this is somebody who looks like the teacher you hated in the second grade. And and there she is again. And so you're seeing the experience through that filter. And there is unpleasant and you don't catch it. And that conditions then the dislike, the aversion... Maybe you say something out of the aversion and then maybe the person says something back and it gets kind of difficult and nasty and the whole cycle of suffering proving that people who look like your second grade teacher are not good people happens one more time and around and around and around you go. And it's very, very interesting to begin to see this. It's a teaching that's sometimes taught as how you get caught in multiple lifetimes. But I think it's a wonderful, wonderful psych- psychologically sophisticated teaching that also teaches the cycles in, of the many lifetimes that we have in, um, in, in one lifetime. So the, the sequence that I want to stick with for the next many teachings is... Um, is sort of a counter to this one. It said, and so this is the how, how do you get out of it? What how is it? What are the things you can look for in your experience and in your practice to begin to move towards liberation, towards freedom from suffering? And so, in this way, you know, with both of these teachings, of course, he describes, the Buddha describes the, the entire human situation, how we get into trouble and then how you get out of it. <laughs> so here's, here's the list. I'm just going to give it to you as it is. And I'll go over it every time I talk about it probably 
just so that we'll all learn it together a bit. <coughs> so he says it starts with suffering. So this is where, and, and this is a really interesting thing, and what I'm going to mostly talk about tonight is how we, we actually begin with that place of suffering. And that place of suffering or stress creates the condition for some kind of change. And out of that, then um, conviction, or it's sometimes translated faith, arises, which creates the condition for delight, which creates the condition for joy, which creates the conditions for tranquility, for serenity, which create the conditions for happiness, which then create the conditions for concentration. And please notice that, all of you who are working so hard on your concentration, Mm -hmm. that what creates the conditions for concentration is not working hard. Mm -hmm. What creates the conditions for concentration is actually happiness. It's really, really important to begin to get that. Concentration, being able to focus the mind to really pay attention, creates the conditions for seeing things as they really are. Seeing things as they really are. And when you see things as they really are, that creates the conditions for kind of disenchantment. So you get, you're getting uncaught, you're unenchanted, which creates the conditions for dispassion, so seeing things without being reactive, which is the condition for liberation or the knowledge of the ending of suffering. So this is another one of these teachings. It can be used in a really precise way to describe different meditative states and and the meditative experience itself. But again, like the teaching on dependent origination of suffering, it also has a really interesting way of working with it in a psychological way to work with our own experience. And each stage arises out of the conditions being place in place from the previous stage. So it's it's all it's all um, nested in a way. What I want to focus on tonight is that it all begins with suffering. It all begins with your suffering. So if you came in here tonight with some level of suffering going on in your life, And if you didn't, actually, you can tell me about it afterwards because I'd like to know because I think most of us do, always. We always have some suffering. Sometimes it's really big suffering, really painful stuff, and sometimes it's not so big, but it's there for all of us. (laughs) And, um, And sometimes with our suffering, we're kind of unconscious and we're caught and we're going around in that cycle and we keep thrashing around and not getting much of anywhere. But sometimes there comes that point where we go, I have to do something about this. I have to understand the suffering. I have to see its nature. We begin to wake up. We begin to to want to approach our suffering differently. While I was teaching this retreat, one of the other teachers, Heather Martin, mentioned that as a young woman she was caught in a very difficult marriage and one day she walked into a bookstore and she saw on the shelf um, the Tassajara bread book was how she pronounced it. 
And she got quite intrigued about this cookbook about the making of bread. All of us who are of a certain age know this book very, very well. And um, and she took it home, and that's actually a book that, because it's written by a Zen practitioner, and it really has lots of Zen teachings in woven into the making of bread, uh, was actually what began to lead her toward practice. And um, I loved hearing that story, because I also had found the Tassajara bread book at one point in my life when I was um, making little forays into the hippie world and I was in a pretty also in a pretty unhappy <coughs> marriage and um, suffering and I had no idea who I was really you know a couple of kids and I was a housewife and you know, things you know I just couldn't quite sort out who I was and and so you know that that beginning to work with my suffering and with myself I'm noticing I'm sort of kneading the bread as I'm talking about it uh, because that's kind of what it's like is where you begin to say well okay you know what happens if I begin to to work this and it led me into the world of Jungian analysis and dream work and and I really began a practice of an examined life at that point in my life <laughs> and so we come to this place that we we have to confront you have to go toward the suffering, not away from it. You have to go toward the suffering and 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 the stress and the cycles, and um, really looking at what can I do? You know, in AA they talk about that point at which you hit bottom. You know, that's the turning point is where you finally hit the bottom, and um, and you can't go any further, and you have to change and. Um, I often think, sometimes I think about this of my good friend Noah Levine, whom a number of you know. And Noah talks about how there he was in juvenile hall. I forget exactly how old he was, maybe 18 or so, 19. And he was well and truly stuck in a really bad cycle of suffering. And then he remembered, his father's also a meditation teacher, and he remembered some of the things that his father had told him about you could follow the breath. That was about as much as Noah remembered. But, you know, he was stuck. He was in jail. What do you do? So he thought, oh well, and began to follow his breath. And it helped. And then one thing led to another. And now Noah is also a wonderful meditation teacher. Um, You know, so that it's that place where we begin to realize we have to look. So I thought of one of my favorite um, stories about, there's a a lot of stories in the Sufi world about one of the great Sufi mullahs whose name was Nasruddin. And he's always a bit mischievous, right? Um, And quirky. And and so one day a, a friend of his found Nasruddin hunting around outside, you know, in the in the street, sort of near the street light, looking under the bushes and looking along the sidewalk, and he said, "You know, what are you what are you looking for?" And Nasruddin said, "Well, I'm I'm looking for my keys." And the man said, "Well, where did you lose them? Where did you last have them?" And Nasruddin said, "They were in my house." And the man said, "Well, why are you looking around out here?" And Nasruddin said, "Because there's more light out here." You know? 
So we do that all the time, don't we? You know, we go to the place where it's a little easier. There's little, there's more light. You know, we're more comfortable. We're more settled in that experience. We don't want to go look where it's dark. That's hard. You know, go in where you really can't see. So part of that early Jungian experience brought me a teaching which has been enormously helpful in terms of really honoring the wounded places. And it's a teaching that comes from the Greek healing mysteries. So it's not a Buddhist teaching particularly. And it has the God word in it, so we have to live with that, but nonetheless. And it says, God sends the wound, God is the wound, God is wounded, and God heals the wound. God sends the wound, God is the wound, God is wounded, and God heals the wound. So, we don't need to deal with the God word particularly, but what that really points toward (coughs) is that there's something quite sacred about woundedness when we really meet it. And that, I think, is really important to see, that, that we are invited to come right in. And, you know, in that story, that early story of the Buddha, when he saw the sick person and the old person and the dead person, and he was so bowled over, then, of course, along came the monk, you know, who was walking in the same setting, seeing exactly the same things, but he wasn't faced by it. He was able to be present, he looked calm and serene and happy. And and so it was that place that where the Buddha began to go, well, this is interesting. How is it that he's meeting the same suffering that's different from the way I am? And what is it that he understands and knows that allows him to do this? And so it was out of that that his inspiration for his early practice and ultimately his enlightenment arose. And so the next time I talk about this, we'll pick up the thread there where the the step of really honoring our suffering leads us to that inspiration to do something about it. But for tonight, um, what I'd really like to invite you to do, if that's possible, is to really encourage all of us, and I certainly would include me in this, I often end up giving Dharma talks that I need to hear, um, to really honor (coughs) our own suffering (coughs) my cold is still catching up with me (coughs) and so to really you know as as we meet different situations whether whether small or whether large to really be interested how 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 am I approaching my suffering? Is there a way that I can go toward it to begin to understand it? To see perhaps where in that cycle that gets caught in the repetitive kind of thing that it might come from, oh yeah, I know this one, I've done it many times before. Oh, this is a little different. And and to really, um, you know, to take it apart so that we can understand it and so that then we can bring it to an end. And when we understand that this is really the first step 
in liberative awareness, then I think that's also what allows us to have the courage to do that. Because sometimes this takes a lot of courage. It's not so easy to go toward your suffering. You know, I'd much rather be out there under the streetlight. Thank you. You know, much nicer out there rather than in some dark, dusty hallway where I can't see. Um, and um, so I hope that this is useful to you and I would like to invite any questions or comments you have about working with suffering. So, the floor is yours. And I'll give my voice a rest for a moment. (coughs) Please. Could you you just read that wonderful phrase again? I'm trying to burn that into my brain. Oh, God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded. God heals the wound. From the Asclepian Healing Mysteries. At, at the risk of taxing your voice more, can you say a little bit about your understanding of that or, or the, the context about that? Well, that's probably at least a week's worth of conversation. Um, <coughs> My understanding of it is that there's nothing that separates woundedness from the divine, whatever that is, from the mystery of things. It's inherent in it. And that even... um, that sometimes, and that going into woundedness can be actually an entrance into the sacred, that there is a way in which that itself is wounded, um, and but it's also the source of healing. It's all of them. So it's very paradoxical. It's, it's like a, a Greek koan, I suppose, mm-hmm. really. And um, so I don't know that <coughs> getting an, an exact linear understanding of it is what's needed as much as letting it reverberate around in your consciousness and just seeing what comes of it. Yeah. Please, Rana. Going into the suffering. Uh huh. Um, Which you specialize in. Other people. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> uh-huh. It's um, it, how do I say this? It's like how does one enter? Because there are so many blocks, so much um, protection. Mm, good question. So many um, barriers mm-hmm. that you know it, it's very difficult to. To, to enter when everything you know it's like I get the paradoxes through is freedom but everything says no you don't go there you don't do that or I, I have in place a lot of wonderful ways to deflect so I think it's one of the places where practice <clears throat> is really helpful so you know that instruction that says when the mind wanders off come back so maybe the way the mind wanders off is into resistance, right? Or the attention wanders off. I don't want to sit with this. It's too much pain. Because sitting actually is a great way 
to begin to open to suffering. Because most of us, when we sit and we get quiet, and particularly if you do it in, a, in the context of a retreat, where it's a little longer, <coughs> often what's difficult shows up. Sometimes even at a night like tonight. You know, you've had a busy day, you've been going 90 miles an hour, you come here, you sit down, you close your eyes, it gets quiet, and all of a sudden you think, oh, goodness, I am really hurt, angry, afraid, whatever. There's a piece of suffering that's there. But you've been going too fast in your day. So then, you can get out of here. You can think, wonder what I'm going to have for dinner after I go home after the sitting. You know, and maybe you do that for ten minutes, and then you go, oh, wait a minute, there was that anger back there. So then, you go back and sit with it for as long as you can stay there and then maybe the mind goes off into next summer's vacation and then you come back and so you just keep that process and there's lots of ways I mean you know this I know as a therapist where you can also intentionally draw it move it you know all those kinds of things find someone like yourself find a therapist to go talk to about it so that you kind of are committed you know I'm going to come see you and talk about my suffering and I've committed to paying you your fee, by God, I might as well talk about my suffering. I don't always, mm-hmm. but... Um, so there are different ways that we can create... So it's a, it's a question of intention. I think that's kind of what I'm getting to. Yeah, Creating the intention to keep coming back to it. So it doesn't, it's not fast. It's not fast. It's not like, okay... I mean, if it were fast, the Buddha wouldn't have been so interesting, right? I mean, you know, an ending of suffering, if it were a snap, it, it, this would, teaching would not have had the kind of, taken up the space and energy that it has for 2,500 years. Please, Rick. In relation to suffering and what you get from your childhood or your uh-huh. upbringing, whatever it is, um, <coughs> looking at and, and really looking at um, right view in, in how it pertains to um, self-image and cognitive dissonance. I don't know if you want to put that in. I mean, it's a psychological mm-hmm. word. And then saying, you know, things you believe about yourself or, or subconsciously believe about yourself and you go out there in the world and try to do something that doesn't equate with that, doesn't match mm-hmm. that. And all of a sudden you self-sabotage yourself and mm-hmm. you don't understand why. And it's because your, your true self-image of what you have, what you believe, mm-hmm. is different from what you're trying to do. You're trying to be a better person and all of a sudden it just blows up in your face. Right. I was wondering if you could say anything about that. Does, I mean, does mindfulness really attune to that? Saying, you know, if, you, if you're mindful to the breath and you do that for ten years, does it even touch that kind of stuff? Uh, if you were just mindful to the breath and never paid any attention to the states of the mind and the heart that came up, I don't think you would touch that stuff. And that's the danger of purely concentration practices, because mm-hmm. they can put you in a pleasant, fairly happy state. And, and it's not so helpful. So the kind of practice that allows, uses the breath and the body to settle, to train the mind to focus, but then opens to the breadth of our experience so that you're mindful of these different things. If you're really being mindful, absolutely. Because then you begin to see, look at that. I'm you know, sabotaging myself every time. I'm creating this enormous suffering. And I'm caught. On that same wheel. Yeah. Please, one more, maybe. 
um, when you were talking about, and we're sitting here, and then for 10 minutes we go out to dinner, and then we, oh, there's anger, frustration, come back to that. And that's what I'm curious about, because I was thinking, oh, well, if I come back to anger, frustration, and then I breathe, I'm breathing, but how am I really touching my anger without getting caught up into the story of Ah, yes. So it's going to another level. (coughs) And the story is often a way to get out of it, right? Your, your anger and then you're doing you're rehearsing it and having the whole scene all over again or whatever and so the invitation is actually to go into the actual felt experience of the anger and often then of course it opens there's hurt and there's all, so it begins to kind of unpack itself and that's where it's helpful is where we begin to understand it and and um or you may, I mean, there's also, I think, simple love, but let's just say you're the one who's angry. You might also really, if you're just sitting with it and the memory of it, also take in, oh, look, it really hurt the other person. So there may also be a place where you take in some of the actual ramifications of it. So there's a lot that can be seen when we don't get caught in the story. All right, maybe that's enough. Um, let me make a couple of announcements. Nothing else. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.